Hi everyone, quick heads up on this episode about Frank Olson. We were originally going to upload the Frank Olson episode you're listening to now before the MK Ultra episode, so you'll hear some references to listening to MK Ultra or references about MK Ultra as in the future, but hopefully you've already listened to MK Ultra, so just ignore those and enjoy. Hi everybody, welcome to the Weird World Podcast. I am Carrie. You are. I am. I'm Dean. And it's just the two of us again. Yeah. We don't like our children. No. Well, we don't, we don't care for them. Let's put it that way. <laughs> they were invited. Yeah, and they're terrible, terrible. Well, so what are you going to talk about this evening, Dean? It is kind of, I don't know if two part is the right phrase, but we're going to do back-to-back episodes on related subjects. Okay. This first one is I'm going to tell you the story of Frank Olson, the man who really, really, really did know too much. Oh. A little bit conspiratorial. A little bit conspiratorial. A lot of bit deep, dark, terrible things done in the interest of national security and preserving secrets. Okay. So we start... At 2 in the morning, or past 2 in the morning, November 28th, 1953, the night manager at the Statler Hotel in Manhattan calls the police. They had a jumper. Like a doorman came out, we were running in and said, we got a jumper, we got a jumper. So he went out there, the night manager did, and he took a look at the crumpled figure on the sidewalk, laying bleeding and battered. He called the police. He looked up at the front of his hotel, and he could see curtains billowing out of a room on the 10th floor. And I guess, you know, he's experienced. He knows his hotel. So he goes, okay, that's room 1018A. Yeah. So he goes in and checks out and who is registered at 1018A, and he finds as two men are registered in that room. Frank Olson and Robert Lashbrook. So please come. They get there. Medical attention arrives. It's too late. The jumper is dead before the ambulance even gets there. I would imagine so. Yeah, it's surprising. He did apparently live on for a little few seconds, at least, after he landed. The police officers, though, they're not sure what to think. Did something happen in room 1018A? So they draw their guns, and they go in. And they look around, and they don't see anybody. They see the windows open. Again, the curtains are kind of blowing gently out. The glass has been shattered. But they see a light on in the bathroom, so they push open the door, and they find a man there who they would later identify as Robert Lashbrook. He's sitting on the toilet, and he looks very, very distraught. Not doing it, he's just sitting on the toilet while he's in there. (laughs) He looks very, very distraught. And he just explained, look, I was asleep, and I heard a noise, and then I woke up. And so an officer says, well, okay, the man that went out the window, what's his name? And Lashbrook says, Olson. His name is Frank Olson. Neither man, it it turns out, would be what the police at first thought they were, or at least the police would not know what they really were. In fact, no one would really know what happened there for decades after this occurred in 1953. The official verdict would be that Olson, quote, fell or jumped from yeah. the 10th floor window. And that was bad. The medical examiner literally just kind of left it there. 
and we'll go into a little bit of, of why that happened, but it's just a, pretty, a real kind of a sketchy determination. Somebody follow jumped, they're dead, case closed, right? Yeah. That was, at best, a partial truth, because in fact, John Lashbrook was a CIA agent. Oh. He was the right hand to a man named Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. And one of the things that the police didn't know at the time, or the public, was that Gottlieb was the head of a super ultra-secret government effort to use chemicals and drugs to win the Cold War. To use chemicals, to use drugs, to turn people into super soldiers or even unwitting assassins, mm-hmm. like a maturing candidate, and to also be able to turn spies and, and, and spill all their secrets. Or to even allow American agents to, to not spill all their secrets. Right. It was a massive drug program centered on LSD oh. that would become to be called MK Ultra. Okay. So Gottlieb was the head of that. Robert Lashbrook was his henchman. Oh, henchman? I think it was fair. He was his assistant. I mean, okay. One. He doesn't I, seem very... Um, Cool under pressure if he's sitting on the toilet because well, somebody fell out of a He window. had a pretty good reason. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, Frank Olson, the man who had fallen or jumped out that window, was a critical part of that effort of MKUltra. He was also, at, by this time, a CIA operative. He had worked for the government and had been in the Army before that. He was a bacteriologist, and he was working. His specialty was essentially aerosolizing chemicals and, and drugs and, and weapons. Oh. Chemical weapons and turning them to aerosol, aerosol form. So you say, bottles, et cetera. are you saying everybody in the story is going to be a bad guy? No, judge for yourself. <laughs> I'm already judging. Okay, I know. No, this is there, there's there's areas of gray here. Uh, no, okay, trust me, there will be. I, okay. I think you'll think there will be. Frank Olson, though, had been, I mean, almost from right after the end of World War II, had been part of these increasing efforts to pursue these wonder drugs and, and these chemicals and as, as, as weapons and also as protections and defenses as well as the Cold War was heating up and it seemed like a life or death struggle for the, the, you know, the, the world. In doing that, in being part of this program, I mean, he was really in like secret institutions within secret installations, literally. He knew everything. He had been privy to some of the best guarded secrets the U.S. government had at the time. Some ones, some secrets that they really did not want to come out. Okay. That is how Frank Olson ends up in November of 1953. Let's, let's start with how Frank Olson starts. He was born the uh, <laughs> children of Swedish immigrants. He was a first-generation American. They were, he was born in Wisconsin, up in the what's called the Iron Country, up in up in up, Upland, Wisconsin. I'm not sure exactly where. Okay. <laughs> he graduated. Graduated. I, I think the town was called Hurley, and he graduated from Hurley High in 1927. He went to the University of Wisconsin. He was a scientist. He was into chemicals and, and biology and things like that. He got his PhD. PhD. He got not his PhD. No, he didn't have his PhD. He got a PhD. It's different. It's, there's, everybody knows there was a PhD, but there's a PhD in bacteriology in 1938. And he married his class sweetheart from college, Alice. And they had three kids, Eric, Nils, and Lisa. Oh. Lisa with two eyes? Um, no, just one. Oh. Sorry. Not very Scandinavian. Oh. No, he Americanized it. 
So he joined the Reserve Officers Training Corps, ROTC, but really it was mainly to help pay off his college debt. Yeah. World War II was impending at this point, and he was called up for active duty when World War II started. Or actually, he was called up for active duty, I think, shortly before, and sent off to Fort Hood in Texas right around when the United States entered the war. And he then worked for a little while in Purdue, which is a university in Indiana. They had an agricultural experimentation station there. So he was already kind of involved in some of these experimental chemical efforts by the, by the U.S. government. Yeah. He, became, he served as a captain. He was in the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. So, you know, I mean, there's not... Chemical weapons have been, you know, rightfully incredibly controversial for a long time, but, it's, but yeah. it, the U.S. didn't sort of swear them off until much later than I think a lot of people realize. In December of 1942, he got a call from a man named Ira Baldwin. This was the, his a thesis advisor back at University of Wisconsin, and Ira Baldwin had become kind of a mentor to a person named Sidney Gottlieb who we now know what he would become and would later go on to become the uh, head of the MK Ultra. Sidney Gottlieb, by the way, was a chemist. So Baldwin wanted Olson to join him as one of the first scientists at a place called Fort Detrick. That's in Maryland. The Army was transferring its chemical arsenal and its chemical efforts to Fort Detrick in Maryland at this time. I think this is now shortly after World War II ended. The Chemical Corps that Olson was part of would take over Fort Detrick and they established a thing called the Biological Warfare Laboratories there. And now, so he was kind of ground floor in these chemical war efforts of the U.S. government. Yeah. And I, actually, I take that back. I think this, this is World War II is actually still going on at this point. This is early, early mid-1940s, 1943 or so. Baldwin, his dissertation thesis advisor, was head of Fort Detrick's at the time, this chemical biological warfare laboratory. And they worked, by the way, with some big pharmaceuticals like Merck, still a huge pharmaceutical, was, was part of these, this group here, or, or working with them. And they established a very, very, very highly secret U.S. bioweapons program in 1943. Mm. So no one, this was not admitted. No one talked about it because they were extremely controversial even back then. Mm. We were certainly working on bioweapons back then. You mean people frowned upon poisoning other people? They did. They also frowned upon Nazis. And so shortly after World War II ended, you may have or may not have heard of a thing called Operation Paperclip. I have. That was a, a program by the U.S. government to bring ex-Nazi scientists and researchers back to the United States so they can share all of their knowledge, often from human experimentation, mm -hmm. with the U.S. efforts on these yeah. chemical and, and biological war. So, you know, good class, including, by the way, working with anthrax, an insanely deadly and, and insidious uh, chemical. It's almost like the military is evil. Mm, I don't know if I'd say that. I'd say the people making these decisions were very thoroughly evil. The military, military mm. institution, the people making decisions. I'm not, I'm, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I know. If your if you're, um, reason for existing is to kill people, then you're... You play fast and loose with morality, I think. Are you are you making the if I had a hammer argument? No. Okay. I don't know what the if I had a hammer. <laughs> Classic song from the, I don't know. 60s. I'd hammer all the evening. I'd hammer all the day long. I'd hammer every day. I'd hammer everything. Something like that. That's not the actual lyrics. Oh, now I get. That's that. the idea. I that, get you, know, that. you see that's... one solution, and that's force. I'd, actually, I'd argue the military has gotten much better at not being that one-sided than it was decades ago. 
Well, that's another discussion. <laughs> it is. I, I don't. I don't know military people, so I can't say. Olson. In, in 1944, Olson left the army, but he didn't change anything. He just became a civilian worker at Detrick, doing basically the same thing he'd been doing. And, and so the war ends. You know, he's all these these Nazis come and help out the, with the work there. In 1949, he and many other of the scientists at Detrick go to a play, uh, go to the island of Antigua in the Caribbean for a thing called Operation Harness, and that tested the vulnerability of different animals to toxic clouds. Oh. And it was also a secret for a long time. In 1950, he was part of something called Operation Sea Spray. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. That was where the U.S. government sprayed mass clouds of a bacteria called Sarasia marcin... Marcin... Mar- oh, good Lord. Marcesins? Probably mispronouncing that. Off the coast of San Francisco. Oh, it was. It actually was exposed over eight hundred thousand American citizens in San Francisco and the surrounding counties. In nineteen forty-nine. Nineteen. Uh, I think it was nineteen fifty. It's called Operation Sea Spray. They said it was. Oh, it was harmless. And they told the people on the ships. It was done by by ships off the coast uh, that it was harmless. But uh, some outbreaks, some weird infections and things like that broke out. It's still not completely clear exactly what happened. Like about eleven people died. Yeah. But it was it was testing. I think they are testing exposure. How complete it would be. How many people would be exposed to a chemical. So if they were going to do something more lethal, they'd have a sense of how what its impact would be. Okay. I think that was the idea. Because all chemicals are the same. Well, I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I imagine they allowed for that. Yeah. Olson also often would travel to a place called Fort Terry, which is in a secret army base in an island off Long Island called Plum. Island, another topic. These are the, all these topics are, are potential world world topics. Yeah. I do Plum Island for a long time. There's a you know hyper secret base right off the coast of New York, off off of Long Island, where they worked with chemicals that were so dangerous they didn't want them on actual U.S. mainland, and it's it's closed down now. Yeah. In fact, they're trying to like redevelop it. Oh God! <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I don't want to go there. I go there for a short stay. Olson was part of something called the Special Operations Division that was formed in spring of 1949 at Detrick. And again, generally speaking, their purpose was conducting research on covert ways to use chemical weapons. Yeah. So he is part of, of this. No question about it. I'm not defending him in that sense. Yeah. But, but keep an open mind. Okay. He, he just wanted to use his knowledge of chemicals <laughs> and biology and bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> that's good enough. That's how that's how people should pronounce it. It's rarely pronounced that way, though. Olson began working with some people. Some pr- people would be pretty important. One of them was Harold Abramson. He, he his name's going to come up later. Again, others were some of these ex-Nazi scientists, and they were working on things like truth drugs and stuff like that. Remember, mm-hmm. MK Ultra was working on LSD to find out how how you know how manipulable and controllable people could be. So he would often go to the uh, Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, which was used for, quote, living, t- I'm sorry, testing, quote, living biological agents, munitions, and aerosol cloud production. He wrote a study on, on the findings they found there. So he was, I, I say this by way of, he was in on all these incredibly hyper-secret kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And there's more to come, by the way. He, he had his family with him? 
He did. He lived in, uh, the, his base was in Detrick, Maryland, so they stayed there. He lived in Maryland, and his family was in Maryland. He would travel to Antigua and Utah and places mm -hmm. like that, and Europe as well. Do you know what his cover was? He like worked at Detrick. I mean, he worked at the fort, in, but, I mean, you know, people knew that it was a lab, and it was U.S. Army, but it wasn't, they didn't know how, the things they were doing there. So I didn't have a cover in that. He wasn't a greeting car salesman. Yeah, I'm just, I wonder what he oh, told everybody he did. Greeting card salesman, I think is the standard. No. Okay. I mean, he knew he was a scientist, so, I mean, I might want to know. Yeah, what's I a, don't know. What's a bacteriologist yeah. doing working for the U.S. He couldn't talk military. to his, his family about what he did, for sure. I know. That's my point. Okay, sorry about that. He learned that the CIA had created this, this special operations division, and that by rumors it had been kind of floating around and so when it was formed his he was playing cards with his old colleague guy named john schwab and he didn't know that john schwab was was had already been hired as a division chief for that lab and john and john schwab said join me in this in 1949 and olson said sure so i, I don't know that i mean how much did olson know what he was getting into i'm not 100 sure he was kind of drawn into it by people he knew and respected but don't get me wrong he 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 soon knew what he was doing yeah and yet, his, his specialty was the airborne distribution of biological germs. And he would do things like, they, they were trying to work out a way to disguise them. Like, for instance, they would, can we put these things in a shaving cream can? Or as an insect repellent bottle? Or something like that. Maybe even like cigarette lighters. And he, in fact, he developed a cigarette lighter that gave out, or could he thought, gave out an, eat, an almost lethal exposure to gas immediately. You can spray it in someone's face and, and you, can, you can kill them. And he developed a lipstick container that could kill on contact with the skin and also a little pocket asthma spray container that could induce pneumonia in the people. So they're developing these different hmm. things. And they're, they're intended for spies, essentially. Right, yeah. I mean, you'd think these things sound James Bondian, yeah. but they're really doing these things. They're shaving green yeah. hands and lipstick. It's, it's, and they put things like staph infections and, and pneumonia and things like that in there. Yeah. And they were, by the way, I mean, I don't, I mean, the stuff I read, it's not clear, but they were working with things like anthrax and, and, and much deadlier things as well. Right. During his time as at the Special Operations Division, Olson actually rose to become chief of that division. And again, this is like a... Detrick itself was highly secret and well-guarded, this the special operations division within Detrick was like a like a secret within a secret. Yeah. I mean, literally, a couple of dozen people knew what there was really going on there. Yeah. Including Frank Olson. He and during this again, he met people like Sidney Gottlieb and his trusted advisor Robert Lashbrook, who worked worked for the CIA and were working on the early early stage of MK Ultra. Essentially, Gottliebers were working on poisons. Here's the important thing. These people thought they were literally holding the future of the United States in their hands, that they were the only thing standing in the way. They were kind of the thin science line between communism sweeping over the world. The, the, the weapons they were making could save the free world kind of an idea. And this caused their sense of morality and decency to be clouded at best. And some, yeah. you know, I, I, I would argue, and we'll learn a little bit more about Sidney, in fact, we'll learn quite a bit more about Sidney Gottlieb in, in MKUltra episode, but he was clearly amoral. Mm -hmm. uh, Frank Olson was not. So he started becoming bothered by these things. His son would later say that he would come home and he was just, he was changing. He's becoming a different person. Every day he'd come home. In 1953, he finally said, I've, I, he resigned from being the head 
and took a, a lower position essentially mm -hmm. and he stayed on but he, he had the pressure he had ulcers and the pressure was just too much for him so he, he didn't want to be the head of the, of the special operations division anymore his son said quote he'd come to work in the morning and see piles of dead monkeys that messes with you he wasn't the right guy for that Hmm. His son Eric would say that years later because they were doing all these horrific animal experimentations on these chemicals and these drugs. Yeah, and he also saw lots of horrific human suffering. I know it's I don't know if it's considered a conspiracy theory, but the United States tortured tons and tons of people, often yeah. tortured them to death. Frank Olson never tortured anyone, but he saw it and witnessed it many, many times. He was, was tasked to monitor some of these torture sessions, in fact. That's the kind of things they were doing in, in Utah, possibly, and for sure were doing in Europe, especially Germany at this time. They had sort of um, black ops, not black ops, but like black locations. What are they called? There's a word for those even now we call it. Uh, <laughs> but we had those kind of secret stations yeah. on foreign soil where we, uh, you know, allowed ourselves to do things that would be illegal on U.S. soil. And but we're done. completely illegal in Germany? Well, probably not. <laughs> but no. it was a little looser there right after the war, especially. Yeah. So, quote, in a CIA safe house in Germany, Olsen witnessed horrific, brutal interrogations on a regular basis. Detainees who were deemed expendable, that is, suspected spies or moles, security leaks, etc., were literally interrogated to death in experimental methods combining drugs, hypnosis, and torture to attempt to master brainwashing techniques and memory erasing. So MKUltra was all about creating these almost, you know, it's, it's not too much of an exaggeration to say kind of a Manchurian candidate-like of, of yeah. or, or to enable U.S. spies to withstand that kind of thing, but really it was about uh, control and manipulation and being able to control other, age, other countries' agents as well. Mm-hmm through brainwashing techniques, and they did horrific things in the pursuit of that. So it's late 1953. He's just getting worse and worse. He's hating his job. He gets an invitation to a gathering that is slated for the 18th of November, and basically what happens is that Gottlieb would have, every few months or so, he would have these little conclaves out in the woods. He had a cabin in a place called Deep Creek Lake in western Maryland, kind of rural Maryland, out in the woods. And they do these little retreats. And the idea was that you'd bring two groups, two critical groups together. The army group working on these chemical secret weapons and the CIA folks, of which Gottlieb and Lashbrook were too. And, mm -hmm. and Olson was on the army side. Again, he was a civilian, but he was on the army side there at Fort Detrick. So he'd bring groups of them and they brought Gosh, I think it was about a dozen of them went to this one in November of 1953. This is November 18th again. It was, it was f I think, four from the CIA and five from the Army and then some civilians, including Olson. I think there was about a dozen or so. There was at least nine there. There may have been a couple more. So it's Thursday evening. The group is, is gathering for dinner. They, they get there on a Wednesday, I believe. Nothing really much happens. Next day, Thursday, they're having dinner together. And Lashbrook brings out a lovely bottle of Contrell and says, hey, who wants a nice drink? Everybody says, I'll have a drink. A couple of people didn't have a drink. Good for them. <laughs> he, He's a, yeah, I don't think I drink anything a CIA guy is offering. <laughs> he, he didn't, he wasn't part of MKUltra, so he didn't know what the things that MKUltra were doing. After about 20 minutes or so, after everybody had their drinks, uh, Lashbrook, or maybe it's Gottlieb, says, hey, how's everybody feeling? And is, are you guys feeling a little bit weird? And they'll go, you know what? We are feeling kind of weird. What's going on? And he said, yeah, we just dosed you with the LSD. 
That bottle was full of LSD. You guys are tripping balls right now. They were not happy. Yeah. I mean, these are top-level scientists for the Army and the CIA. I don't know if any of the... Gottlieb and Rashbrook, I believe, did not drink any. Yeah. Gottlieb, though, had dosed himself in the past. And I believe Lashbrook had as well. They dosed each other. Again, I don't want to step on MKUltra, but they were dosing American agents and soldiers all the time without their knowledge. Olsen himself, or Olsen particularly, was very upset by hearing about this. He became very angry. His son later said, quote, he was quite agitated and was having a serious confusion with separating reality from fantasy, end quote. And later, they became boisterous and laughing, and but there, no one could have an intelligible conversation or know what the hell they were talking about. They, they, just, they really were just tripping. And it, yeah. They were tripping for hours and hours because they gave them a Ooh. lot <laughs> Of LSD. Well, yeah, because it wouldn't be easy to control, it right? Was not. And, and they were just learning. But remember, this is in the early days. They were they were still experimenting. How much LSD was too much? Yeah. How much would create what kind of effect, etc. They think we'll we'll talk a little more about this in a, in a minute here in a few minutes. But by this time, they're very nervous about Frank Olson and and maybe some of the others. So they think. Gottlieb was doing this to see what they'd say. Yeah. Like, what if the Russians captured them and dosed them with LSD? Would they spill all the secrets? Mm-hmm. It's not completely clear. I don't know if it's ever been clear exactly what happened. But even by the next morning, they're still feeling it. Not, not still tripping, but not feeling well. So the meeting breaks up, and everybody goes home. Olson went back to Frederick, Maryland, where Fort Detrick was near. And I guess on the drive there, he was just really thinking about his life and about what he did and what had just happened to him. And he, uh, the pe- person who drove with him said that he, you know, just seemed like he was a changed man. Yeah. On the next morning, November 23rd, he goes to work early at Fort Detrick and his b- boss is a guy named Vincent Ruitt, who knew, who had known him even before that. He was friends with him. Vincent Ruitt was also at that retreat and had also been dosed. So, and and oh. he's still not in great shape, and neither one were. And it had been more than four days since they had had the LSD, but both both of them were just like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel great. You don't feel great. He Ruitt would, say, would later call it the most frightening experience I have ever had or hope to have. So I think they got a pretty big dose, as I mentioned. Yeah, I, I think being drugged... Yeah. without your knowledge would be especially something like that that isn't just you Exa- know yeah, I know I'm way, tipsy or high or whatever much. yeah Ruitt said that Olson was just agitated and he basically said okay um, should you fire me or should I quit and Ruitt's like whoa 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 hold on and kind of calmed him down and said you know you're doing great work everybody likes you don't quit <laughs> we don't want to fire you and slowly he convinced him okay he won't resign and that he's, you know, he's overreacting. Bolson had, by this time, spent 10 years at Fort Detrick, and wow. he, you know, he knew everything there was to know. He'd, again, he'd been head of the Special Operations Division yeah. for a time. He knew all the secrets. I mentioned Germany before there. That's, uh, in Heidelberg and Berlin, the U.S. military had these clandestine centers where they did yeah. interrogations, and... He had gone there multiple times. In fact, in 1951, he'd been to France. And at that same time, a little French village called Pont Saint-Esprit was mysteriously shaken by an outbreak of what would later be said to be probably ergot 
poisoning. There's a mass hysteria. Everybody in the village freaked out, violent, like tremors and things like that. Uh, more than 200 people had to be hospitalized, and s I think seven or something like that, or maybe more than that, died oh, during wow. this horrific outbreak. Ergot is a fungus. That fungus is what produces LSD. LSD is an extraction oh, of ergot fungus. I didn't, I didn't know either, that. actually. So, and to this day, it's, it's like, oh, it just happened naturally. I don't know. Seems strange to me that a guy who was part and parcel of the U.S. chemical warfare system was there yeah. at about that same time in that same area. Frank Olson was there? Yes, and other U.S. agents as well. Okay. During the Korean War, the Chinese came out and captured uh, some soldiers, and these soldiers said that the U.S. has been conducting chemical warfare on North Korea. And the U.S. said, no, we're not, no, we're not, no, we're not. To this day, no one knows for sure if we did or not. It's not clear. It's possible that we did. If yeah. we did, Frank Olson knew all about it. That was something that was so explosive. Yeah. And that would have been just an unbelievably explosive international incident had that been proven and shown to be true. Frank Olson had a habit of speaking his mind, though. A friend of his named Norman Cornoyer would later say, quote, he was very, very open and not scared to say what he thought. He did not give a damn. Frank Olson pulled no punches at any time. That's what they were scared of, I am sure. End quote. He knows all these things. He's seen all these horrible things at the same. And then he's getting one more word already before that trip to the woods of Maryland and the, and the dosing there. He had already expressed a lot of antagonism uh, toward what he was doing, or at least a lot of doubt and worry about what they're doing. And he was, and, and his his coworkers can tell he was kind of changing. Yeah. In fact, in the spring of 1953, he went to an English station that the U.S. controlled called the Microbiological Research Establishment. It was at Porton Down in Wiltshire County in England. And there, the government was, government scientists were testing the effects of sarin and other nerve gases. These are incredibly dangerous gases. Yeah. On May 6, 1953, it, with Frank Olson there, a volunteer subject who was a 20-year-old soldier was dosed with sarin oh and God. he foamed at the mouth he collapsed and he died an hour later. Yeah. Frank Olson witnessed this. Uh, and Frank Olson started talking. He went to a psychiatrist uh, that was had top secret clearance named William Sargent. Yeah. And started talking about this, these things and that they really, really bothered him and he didn't like it. Mm -hmm. Back in Germany, about a month later, so this is probably June, on that same trip in, in uh, Europe, he visited a, a CIA safe house near Stuttgart and there he witnessed another interrogation session in which a man, uh, I think it was like a, you know, a, a suspected East German agent, mm -hmm. uh, was interrogated and died in agony from the chemical weapons that Frank Olson knew he was part of, of the effort to make. Right. He's talking to this about, to, to Sergeant, the psychiatrist, I think he was a psychiatrist, I believe he was, yeah, I think he was, and he, like, uh, Sergeant writes it up in his report and sends that report to Sidney Gottlieb, or at least Sidney Gottlieb got a, a copy of it, and Sergeant said that Olson was, quote, deeply disturbed over what he had seen in CIA safe houses in Germany and displayed symptoms of not wanting to keep secret what he had witnessed. Uh-oh. Now, remember, this is now just a few months before they dose him with LSD in 
the woods at that retreat in Maryland. I, I don't I don't know this. I'm speculating at this point, but I've been surprised that Frank Olson. Yeah, they dosed other people, but Frank Olson was the target. Right. Of that. So there's no uh, doctor-patient confidentiality if you're going to see the nope <laughs> the doctor. You might think there are. That works for you. So he's the Doctor Bellows of the yeah. Of yeah. The oh, he's going to give it up, guys. <laughs> Yeah, no, no such thing when you're talking about, again, these are the biggest secrets. Literally, these are literally <sighs> the biggest secrets that the country has to hide. Maybe, maybe researching the nuclear weapons is the only thing bigger or as big. Yeah. Did they find these records in Trump's um, shoe closet? <laughs> no, they didn't, but they were probably there. Five days now after he was dosed with LSD, he's, again, he's still feeling woozy. He's feeling disoriented. Ruit, he has that meeting with Ruit and says he wants to quit. Ruit goes and also tells Gottlieb. And so Gottlieb tells Ruit, hey, bring him over to me. I want to have a, a talk with him. And so Gottlieb talks with Olson. And he would let, Gottlieb would later say that uh, Olson seemed, quote, confused in certain areas of his thinking. And so Gottlieb <laughs> just made a decision right then and there. We got to send him to get some help. So we're going to send him to New York City and he's going to talk to a doctor named Harold Abrams. I remember that guy? Yeah. Well, that guy is now part of MK Ultra. Again, the top, top, top secret government operation to develop Manchurian candidate. I'm oversimplifying that, but yeah. just to, as a shorthand. Uh, Harold Abrams is not a, not a psychiatrist, but he's the closest thing that they had that knew about MK Ultra, and, and that uh, sergeant had high clearance, but, but Abrams ha, ha even, has even higher clearance, and Abrams mm -hmm. is, again, part of MK Ultra. So you, yeah. you'll get why that's important in a second, mm -hmm. I think. Alice Olson, his wife, was just told that, hey, we're going to send Frank up to New York to see a doctor and that, you know, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so Olson meets with Abramson in New York and he tells him that ever since that he was dosed with LSD, he's just, he's been a mess. He can't yeah. work. He can't concentrate. He's forgotten how to spell words. That's how bad it is. He, he, had some, he maybe had some permanent brain damage. He, he hadn't been sleeping at all. Uh, and, and again, but he had been bothered for, for years now of what he was doing. Is LSD one of the drugs like, um, you know, psychedelics like mushrooms or yes, one of those oh, things? Yes, for sure, that, yeah. But that... It's a hallucinogen. But so it... But it doesn't do things like open up, open your mind and... Um, you know what I mean? I like I don't know. I mean... I should know. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was more like not brain damage, but... Um, you but, know, um, I, I think maybe it was kind of the final straw. I think it was like uh, making him realize more fully... Possibly. ...the evil of what was going on. Maybe. And They've been eating at him for uh -huh. years now. But also, remember, it was also making him disoriented. Yeah. And his, mind, his brain wasn't working right also. So it, it has some yeah. negative effects, not just some mind-opening effects there for yeah. sure. So, it had been about a week now since they had the LSD at Deep Creek Lake, and uh, Olson was going to go. wanted to go back home to be with his family for Thanksgiving. So the day after seeing Abramson, I think on the twenty third or so, he drove back with Lashbrook, James Lashbrook, and uh, Ruit. They, or, or, no, I'm sorry, he didn't drive back. He, they got in a flight back to Washington D.C. from New York, and and then someone picked them up at the airport. And they drove back to Frederick, Maryland. On the way there, Olson asked they stop the car. And 
I, I think they were going to drive him home from the airport. And he said, stop the car, stop the car. I can't go home. I, he quote, he, I feel ashamed to meet my family because I'm so mixed up. Yeah. And Root asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, just let me go. I'm just I'm going to go off by myself. And he goes, Ooh. we can't do that. Yeah. And so, okay, well, then turn me into the police. I'm sure they want me anyway. And Ruit said, yeah, yeah. Again, I don't think he's thinking very yeah. rationally here. Ruit says, nope, we're not going to do that. You know what? Why don't we go back to New York? Yeah. We'll talk to Abramson. He'll calm you down. How about that? So, he, so Olson never makes it home. And Olson mm-hmm. says, okay. So they get, he get in a taxi with Ruit. And they take the cab all the way to Abramson's weekend home on Long Island. They go up there by, by taxi, and <laughs> Abramson spends about an hour talking to Olson, and then he debriefs Lashbrook after that. I don't know where they sp- spend the night, because maybe they spend the night at, at Abramson's house, because the next morning, the three of them drive together. They must have. They drive back to Manhattan, where mm-hmm. Abramson has his office, and they go to his office on 58th Street, and they have another session there, and... Abramson persuades Olson. He says, okay, look, why don't we just have you be a voluntary patient at a hospital? You'll get some help. You'll get the help that you need. We'll send you to a, a sanatorium in Maryland, which will be not that far from your family. They can visit you. You know, we're going to help you yeah. get better. That's that's our solution. Let's do that. We'll keep you drugged up. Yeah. No, he, he's in very much in favor of it. He's happy with that. He's yeah. like, okay, I'll, I'll get, I'm going to get the help I need. So we can talk to anybody about what is bothering him. That's true, but at least he can get some psychiatric, psychiatric help. I don't know what that would contain. He, he was apparently happy with the decision. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Yes, for yeah. sure. So it's too late to go home, so Olson and Lashbrook check in to the Statler Hotel in Manhattan. They are giving room 1018A. They have dinner. And Olsen there tells Lashbrook, you know, I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a turning point. I, I, I want to go to this hospital and, and, and get better. And he's like, I have so much time. I'll, I'll, all these books I've been wanting to read. I can read all these books. <laughs> and he, and, and Lash, Lashbrook will later say that he almost seemed like the old Frank Olsen for a yeah. bit there. So they go up to the room. They watch some TV for a while. Olsen washed his socks in the sink <laughs> and uh, lay down to sleep. And... Which you wouldn't do if you were contemplating suicide. Probably not. At 2.25 in the morning, he falls or jumps out a window. Mm-hmm. The police, to catch up with that, the police got there, and they did the investigation we started off the episode with. And the night manager there was, also, was, was suspicious. He thought it was weird, because he, he went into the room, and there was a lot of obstacles between his bed and the room. And the way the, the, it was, the idea was that he took a running jump because you have to clear a 31-inch tall radiator to get... There's a radiator right in front of that window that he supposedly right. jumped out of. And the idea was that he'd have to jump out because I guess his body was far enough away. I'm not completely clear. Yeah. But the idea was that he je- leapt headfirst out this window and fell onto his... The back of his head fell back down. That doesn't make sense. I don't know. Um, and so the night manager was pretty suspicious from the from the get go. Yeah. And so he was very thoughtful. He, he thought he goes, "Hey, he went to the um, operator for the hotel, the hotel phone operator, uh-huh. and just said, hey, has anybody made a call from room ten eighteen tonight?'" She says, "As a matter of fact, they did." And 
someone in the room called a number on Long Island. Mm-hmm. That number was listed as belonging to Dr. Hal Abramson. And uh, the, she actually, it wasn't her policy, but it was a very brief conversation as she listened in. And the conversation, essentially, the caller said, well, he's gone. Aberson answered, well, that's too bad. That caller, obviously, was James Lashbrook. Right. Take that to mean what you, what you want to take it to mean. So the police do their fairly cursory investigation. The next day, a colleague of Olson at Detrick drove out to the Olson household to break the news to the family and to Alice and, and the three kids. And, and he, again, apparently he said, fell or jumped, which I find unusual way to put that. I don't know if he really said that. One of the sources I read said he did. They were shocked and everything, but it was, I mean, it was chalked up as a suicide. They knew he was very troubled. Yeah. They knew he was psychologically troubled. Yeah. Uh, and he had been getting worse. So the, the family, from what I can gather at the time, believed it. Yeah. And... They believed it for a very long time. What, what, other, what else happened, that is an interesting side story here, is that, have you ever heard of Frank McCord? You may have, because I think you was listening to a show about Watergate, aren't you? Or you yeah, I mean McCord, but I thought... Frank McCord, Frank McCord was one of the Watergate burglars. I thought it was James. Oh, I'm sorry, is it, is it James? I think you're right. Yes, I'm sorry, my bad. James McCoy okay. was one of the Watergate burglars. Yeah. He was a CIA agent and a CIA operative at times. Uh-huh. At this time, guess what he was? He was a cleaner, I think. He was a, a, a cleaner upper, not a, not a mess, yeah. but he took <laughs> care of situations. Correct. And there's a group in the CIA in the 1950s had a group. They worked for, for the head of it was named Sheffield Edwards, and it was at, at the Office of Security within the CIA. And effectively, it did... I honestly, it did cover-ups. Yeah. It helped effectuate cover-ups. cover-ups. Frank, Frank McCord, I can't call him Frank McCord, James McCord got on a, on a plane the very next morning. He was there at the Statler Hotel by 8 a.m. the next morning. Mm-hmm. So not even not even six hours after he, uh, uh, Frank Olson had hit the ground. And basically he, he started, you know, he knew he had to work on the police. He had to make sure that they did not. He, he, he basically laid out a plan of, cover-up yeah the first thing was get the police to not investigate very closely he was able to do that he said you gotta mislead the press as well and so oh okay suicide he was a jumper he committed suicide and and again he may have yeah but you gotta make sure they buy that story that that's the official story then you've got to figure out why is James, James Lashbrook there, and, and so they made up a story for James Lashbrook's background, not that he was a CIA agent, because yeah, he was the only witness, so they knew that he was going to have to talk to the police. Yeah. The police were going to interrogate them, so he, he gave James Lashbrook, here's what you say, here's what your background is. McCord did. Uh-huh. And lastly, they said, we got to get the family on board ASAP, and securely so. So they're going to have to be kept cooperative and placated, and, and they were. The end result was this medical examiner report that said that it was a jump or fall and just left it at that. No foul play involved. The, the lead investigator for the police concluded that same kind of same thing. He had died from multiple fractures subsequent upon a jump or fall, end quote. And that was it. Yeah. That was the official narrative. But the family was given, you know, full, he was a hero and their yeah. rights, and they were just, you know, they were, oh, he, he died for his country kind of a thing. It, yeah. it, it, too much, it got to him kind of yeah. an idea, and they were very proud of him. All the way until June 12th, 1975. So for 22 years, the family believes they're troubled but valiant, 
heroic father-husband died in New York by probably jumping. Jump or fall may have been just a way to say, okay, maybe a suicide, maybe it was. Right. It could have been yeah. an accident. But in 1975, the Washington Post runs a story about an unnamed Army scientist who had been drugged with LSD by the CIA, had had a bad reaction, and nine days later jumped out of the window of a New York hotel. Wait, who wrote about this? The Washington Post. They found some secret documents. Some un- They uncovered some documents that told this story, but they didn't name names because they didn't know the name yet. The documents they had didn't name who that was. But the Olson family reads this and goes, Good that's Lord. Frank. That's yeah. my dad. That's my husband. Yeah. And so they make this known, and um, but the press doesn't leave it alone, and they start asking the government, who, who was this scientist? And they, and they doggedly pursue the who of this until finally they admit that the person, this person A in this story was Frank Olson. Mm. And so the family's very pissed off. The, Alice says that, you know, her husband wasn't, she starts being very suspicious. She says, my husband wasn't irrational. He wasn't sick. Uh, he, but he was sad, and he was talking openly about leaving his job. And so she wants to know what really happened 22 years ago. Yeah. And she's not satisfied. So they are going to sue the CIA to find out exactly what happened. This freaks people out. I'll betcha. We'll go into more on MKUltra, but, but when um, Watergate happened and started becoming a big thing, they destroyed everything they could find having to do with MKUltra. Okay. Gottlieb did. Richard Helms, the head of CIA, did as well. They destroyed everything they could. It's just too, so th- there's not a lot out there left from MKUltra, but there's other documents, there's other people, people that knew of what happened. So the government's really worried, oh shit, a lawsuit would give detectives in New York, for instance, the right to ask a lot of really, really, really uncomfortable questions, questions yeah. that might have to be answered. They were very scared. It was a homicide case. They were worried that yeah. this was going to force them to tell, divulge some very, very dark secrets. Yeah, couldn't they just say that's classified, that's classified, that's classified? Uh, they could, but it was going to look bad at best. Yeah. And yeah. at worst, they were going to have to actually not, not be allowed to say that and, and have to actually tell some of those secrets. Yeah, Because again, it had been 22 years. And some of the things that happened were even longer ago than that. So this is 1975, right? The president's jumped forth. This is after Richard Nixon had resigned. Wait, did Nixon resign? 70, he died in 74, in August of 74. Oh. This is 75 now. This is June of 75. Okay. So Ford is president. His chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, would like to go into glory guy. of the Persian Gulf War. Mm-hmm. His, his uh, deputy, I think, or Rumsfeld's deputy, a guy named Dick Cheney. Mm, another, that's a great guy. Another super, super class act. They both, Rumsfeld and Cheney, they're the ones who realize, okay, this is dangerous. We got to do something about this. So there were a memo that said, you know, let's fix this. They recommended for that he make a quote public expression of regret and express a willingness to meet personally with Mrs. Olson and her children. So he did. He had them in. Like eleven days later, he had the the whole family into the Oval Office to take pictures. Yeah. And he said all the right things. I'm so sorry. It was a tragedy. It never should have happened. I apologize on behalf of the U.S. government. That was something that had never been done before. Hey, was Ford ever in the CIA? Where did he come from? Mm, not the CIA. Okay. He was a. a Come from what you mean? Where did he come from? He was a member of the House. He was the House Minority Leader when he was picked to be VP. Okay. From Michigan is where he came from. If you want to be that specific. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the only time 
that a president had ever had the family of a CIA operative into the Oval Office. Yeah. They also went to the CIA in Langley, and then now head of the CIA, William Colby, apologized as well. He said, you know what? Some of our people were out of control in those days. They went too far. There were problems of supervision and administration. <laughs> End quote. I mean, just, they said all the right things, and they said, hey, also, here's $750,000. Yeah. Sign here, and you'll drop all legal claims forever and ever and ever. They signed. They hesitated, but they signed. Congress actually had to pass a special bill for the appropriation to pay off the $750,000 to the Olson family. So did they get it all, or did they have to pay taxes? They did get. I have no idea. Okay. Remember that? So, so back when, way, way back in 1953, Gottlieb had gone to the funeral, and he had told the family, the wife, the kids were, were very young. But he told Alice, said basically, "Hey, you know what? If one day you ever know, when, 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 when we to fill you in on what happened, you know, around Frank, my door's always open. Come ask me." That's weird. I know it is weird. 1984. Gottlieb had long retired. He'd been yeah. retired for a decade, I think, by then. They actually took him up on, a, on his offer. And they, yeah. and they called him, and he arranged to meet him and have an appointment. And Alice brought the kids with her, or at least she brought Eric and Nils with her. And when they got there, he greeted them by saying, Oh, I'm so happy you don't have a weapon. I had a dream last night that you all arrived at this door and shot me. Weird opening line when wow. you have these people come into your home, but but he did. But also, yeah. how do you know they don't? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. A, not one in your hand, I guess. Eric would later say that this guy was a master manipulator. He had us apologizing to him. Of, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, you feel so uncomfortable, things like that. Jesus Christ! And so he they, he basically talks about him, says how about he told him what happened. He he said yes, you know, we did take LSD then in 1953 at that retreat at Deep Creek Lake back in November of 1953. And the idea was that we wanted to see what would happen to a scientist if they were drugged with the, with the volatile information, which is surprisingly honest, I think, because I yeah. think that really was the idea. Yeah. And he talked about it, how great, how patriotic his, his dad was, how you know, he was just like him. They're both, they both got into this to save the country, and they were doing such great things for the country. But when Eric pressed him on, like, well, hold on, there's some inconsistencies in your story, he got kind of pissy and wouldn't talk about it anymore. Mm -hmm. But still, it left a pretty good impression until they're about to leave. The meeting's kind of breaking up, and they're going home, and Gottlieb pulls Eric aside, and he says, hey, you know what? You're obviously really troubled by your father's suicide. You should think about getting to one of those suicide therapy groups. You know, the kids or the loved ones of people who committed suicide, um, you know, that might help you. Yeah. Eric was not happy with that. He just felt like it was it was manipulative. Yeah. It kind of opened his eyes. Right at the end of the meeting, it kind of opened his eyes that this guy was full of shit, and he was trying to manipulate me, and he felt like he's trying to defuse me. He's trying to you know set me aside and make sure I don't look any further, because I think he can tell Eric was the most skeptical and the most passionate about finding out what happened to his dad. Yeah. So he tried, so Eric felt like he was being picked out, and this guy was going to try to defuse me, Eric. And so at that point, he said, nope, I'm, I'm going to continue to look into it. It took him a decade because he had to wait for his mom to die. But his mom died in 1994, and almost immediately he, he, had, he had his father's body exhumed. Oh, And wow. he said, I want to have toxics, uh, toxins tested for I want to see what was in his system. Is and that I, possible? Yeah. Well, in this case, no, apparently. Uh. But 
potentially yes. Yeah. And also, just just I want to have a forensic pathologist take a look. So they got a guy named James Stars at George Washington University, who was a leading forensic pathologist of the time. Yeah. And they exhumed the body. James Stars looked at, examined it for over a month. Had toxicology screens tested. They did not find any toxins in the body. Yeah. We know though that he was dosed with a heavy amount of LSD. So yeah. I, don't, I, I imagine that means you can't tell. This is now 1994, so it's been over yeah. 40 years. Yeah. But he looked at the wounds and the wound pattern. When, they, when Frank Olson's body was taken back to Maryland and given to the family, it was a closed casket, and they told Alice, don't look at it, don't open the casket. He's been horribly disfigured in his face. Yeah. You don't want to see it, trust us. He was not. Oh. There was not a lot of uh, the, the kind of injuries that James Stars would have expected to have seen. There were also no glass shards anywhere in his head or neck, which he would have expected to have seen if he really did dive headfirst through a window. And he thought that he, uh, he was told he was landed on his back, but the skull above his left eye was smashed. Not the back. The back. He felt that it was very, very possible that someone had had Hit disabled him, him yeah. by smashing him in the in the face to knock him out. And then he did. He went at the time. He didn't say. And then he was tossed out the window. But it was right. he, later he would say that. And he says he said, "Quote: I think Frank Olson was intentionally, deliberately, with malice aforethought, thrown out of that window." He said, "Quote: I'm skeptical that anyone could clear a radiator, a 31-inch high window sill, pass through a three by five foot window opening obscured by a drawn shade, all in the darkness of a hotel room at night." Yeah. End quote. So I the, assumed the window was open. The window was not open. The shade yeah. was still closed. That window was flapping. It was flapping the window. I, I, probably, I probably used the word curtains, but it was the, the shade yeah. had been pulled down to block the light. So it was a d- dark room. Uh, yeah. And again, James Lashbrook said, no, I was dead asleep. We were, as far as, you know, right. it was dark, and all of a sudden I hear this noise, and I got up. So he just didn't think that was physically possible to do. And um, he came to the conclusion that he thought he might have, there was a pretty good chance he'd been murdered. So Stars would later actually interview Sidney Gottlieb, too, which was surprising. Sidney Gottlieb agreed to be interviewed. This is yeah. getting very old by this time. This is 1994. And Starr said that, quote, I was emboldened to ask how he could so recklessly and cavalierly have jeopardized the lives of so many of his own men by the Deep Creek Lodge experiment with LSD. And Gottlieb's response was, Professor, you just don't understand. I have the security of this country in my hands. And that's about all he'd say. That's a little bit grandiose. Yeah, Star would later say this was the weirdest interview he ever had <laughs> with the witness, the guy. You know, but that was the attitude for a lot of these people in the sea at the time, and mm-hmm. and in in, in the, any kind of clandestine clandestine operations for the U.S. government. They really did at the at the. This is fifty three. This is the height of the Cold War. These are some of the worst years of the Cold War, mm-hmm. and every behind every and you know what? There were Russian spies here in in upper echelons of the U.S. and vice versa, yeah. by the way. But still, they were super paranoid and really believed that the end was nigh for the U.S. way of life. So they were able to get this finding from James Starrs, and it sure looked like there was a lot more to be than the story about his dad. There was a good chance that his dad was was murdered. But that's where it ended, because you remember in 1975 when they got three-quarters of a million dollars they, they signed a form, yeah. and that was it. They could not see the government. They could not 
pursue the case uh, from then on. Well, I don't know why they couldn't pursue it short of filing a lawsuit. I mean, finding out the truth. But yeah, I guess I know. if you don't file a lawsuit, nobody has to cooperate with exactly. you. Exactly. There's no legal yeah. road yeah. path for them. So. But this time, was Lashbrook still alive? I don't think so. I don't think he was. he would be the one that you yeah. need to talk to. And Abramson. Abramson, too. I, Abramson was for sure dead. Yeah. So Eric Olson would later, you know, write about it and, and talk about it. His dad, he said that, you know, the death of Frank Olson, his dad, on November 28, 1953, was a murder, not a suicide. This is not an LSD drug experiment story. This is a biological warfare story. Frank Olson did not die because he was an experimental guinea pig who experienced a bad trip. He died because of concerns that he would divulge information concerning a highly classified CIA interrogation program in the early 1950s and concerning the use of biological weapons by the United States in the Korean War, end quote. That doesn't have to be true for it to be true that he died because he knew too much. Yeah. So maybe, again, it's not clear. Serious scholars don't know for sure if we did any kind of chemical warfare in North Korea, but even right. if we didn't, he saw some horrific things. He saw people tortured to death. Mm-hmm. He saw people doused. He saw horrific experiment, experimentation and clear, you know, illegal yeah. interrogation. Uh, you know, he knew some really bad and embarrassing things that the U.S. government had done in the name of the Cold War, yeah. and he was clearly a threat to tell these things. And he, you know what? And he really was. Yeah. He, there was a chance. He was mentally unstable by this point. Didn't help that they dosed him with LSD. He, he hated what he had done and, and what they'd made him a part of. Yeah. And he regretted it. And he was bold enough to talk about it. And he was going to quit. He and may, he may yeah. have been mentally unstable. All those things. He may not have been mentally unstable. He was just struggling with some very serious yeah. issues. And that's not instability. That's, that's true. struggling with serious issues, which... Honestly, the most mentally stable person on the planet would be. That's true. That's true. He was struggling psychologically before the LSD. Yeah. From what he did, from guilt, sure, from, from normal ways. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't doesn't mean he was mentally unstable. Right. And and he may not have ever uh, told the secrets, but from their point of view at the time, he was a massive, massive security risk. Yeah. Doesn't mean you get to kill him. No, I was going to say there are probably better ways of handling such mm-hmm. a situation short of murder. They decided that was the best way to handle. I don't know. Okay, so I mean, this is the, there's a part of this is a mystery. By the way, this was done as a I think a six part docudrama kind of a thing called Wormwood by Netflix. I think I saw parts of it. It sounds familiar. Yeah, it was uh, it was Errol Morris who made The Thin Blue Line, the documentarian, and he intermixed actual, like Peter Sarsgaard was in it, and actual acting parts, sort of fictionalized, but not really, I mean, you know, sort of live action, you know, parts that illustrate the things that happened with interviews and things like that in kind of normal documentary style. He would would kind of interchange those things. Very well reviewed. I don't know if it's still on Netflix or not, but... You know, a very it tells the story from what I understand pretty accurately. Oh, but it, it tells the story clear. I, I think I don't know if El Morris. I think they it more or less implies that he was murdered. Yeah, are is are his children still alive? I think so. Yeah, at the very least, you would have to say that even if it, he was, they didn't knock him out and throw him out the window. 
they dosed this guy's LSD just nine days before. So yeah. even if he did jump out the window, they are responsible for that. Yeah. Have happened. He would not have done that absent them giving him a massive dose of LSD. Yeah, I don't think he did. I don't know. That's that's the that's the mystery part of it. Is was he killed? Yeah. Did, did he jump, or was he murdered out outright? I don't know. I, I, yeah. I mean, the, the, the medical office isn't... I mean, like, the, the shards of glass. I mean, maybe they took out the shards of glass in 1953. I don't know, you know. Maybe he, the, the injury to the eye was did happen from the fall. I don't know. But yeah, very the, the idea that they would have... Given what an incredible risk he was and how it was, in their mind, a really good shot. He was going to tell things to people who, who they didn't want to hear these things. Yeah. They are, are clearly motivated to kill him. Yeah. There's no question that CIA and the, the folks doing MK Ultra were absolutely motivated to kill him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What do you think? I wonder how many people the CIA has killed. More than one. I mean, like American citizens and. I would I would come on at least one because I think Frank Olson. If I had to say, you know, yes or no, I, I think he's probably get murdered. Oh, I think so too. And I think they've killed a lot more than this. Yes, they have, for sure. <laughs> well, that is the story of Frank Olson. Next time, we will bring you the story <sighs> of MK Ultra. This is very disillusioning. I mean, not like I was uh, under well, any illusion that, but, you know. Well, the MK Ultra is not going to help with that attitude. I know. Say, but it's it's got some amazing, I mean, it's, it's some unbelievable aspects to it, for sure. Okay, so what do you think the chances are that our government is still up to these shenanigans. Not as bad as that, because I think the church committee by Senator Frank Church from Idaho um, investigated this in, in, uh, in the ni- mid-1970s, mid-late-1970s, and brought a lot of these things to light, and it was incredibly embarrassing. The CIA was on its heels for years after that. I think that... There, it was a searing lesson that we don't want to do these things again. Because, I mean, then if, we, if the CIA had done something like that again within 10 or 15 years after the church committee, they may have been disbanded. Okay. And if they do something in, in today's environment, I, I think they genuinely worry that we could go away. We could be disbanded, and, you know, there'd be something else to do the intelligence, handle intelligence, but it wouldn't be the CIA anymore. Right. So I think they're uh, fearful enough of the consequences to not do the worst kinds of things that happened in the 50s and 60s, but... Do I think they're doing things that they don't want people to know about every day? Well, of course they are. Yeah. But I mean, to the point where they are, I mean, these are atrocities. Yes, no, absolutely. No question. So no question. I hope they're not doing they that tortured kind of stuff. people to death extrajudicially. Enough said. That's, well, that's a war. Crime. I mean, we were doing that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's so, still not I mean, okay. I know. So, yeah. Now, I think, I think, now, now, do we still do that? No question. Yeah. We did terrible things in those black sites, which I still can't think of the word that they're called. Are you thinking of rendition? Or is, that's different? That's it's the, those sites where those things oh, occurred. Yeah. Uh, that we did some terrible things in there. What was it? Did it stop at waterboarding? I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I don't know. I doubt it. Um, waterboarding is bad enough, but it, 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 it may not have stopped there. So I don't know. I, but I, I do think genuinely that we're better now than then. A lot. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, I hope you're right. But low hurdle. So that is Frank Olson. Next Thanks. week, MK Ultra. Okie dokes. See you around. Thanks for listening.